0: Welcome to our new episode of This Is Democracy. This is a very dismal week, and we are coming to you this week to talk about the dismal events that have occurred in Israel and the Palestinian territories of the last week to make sense of the violence, to make sense of the terrorist attack by Hamas, and to make sense of the Israeli response and American and worldwide reactions to that. We are joined by a friend and the person who I think is writing some of the most important coverage of these events and the person who puts this really in perspective as a historian and scholar and journalist. This is Peter Beinart. Peter is a professor of journalism and political science at the Newmark School of Journalism at the City University of New York. I hope all of you subscribe to his Substack newsletter, Beinart Notebook. He's also the editor-at-large of Jewish Currents, an MSNBC political commentator and frequent writer for the New York Times and various other publications. Peter has written a number of important books uh, and most recently published a piece in the New York Times on October 14th titled, There is a Jewish Hope for Palestinian Liberation. It Must Survive, a really wonderful uh, title. Peter, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Before we turn to our discussion uh, with Peter Beinart, of course, we have our scene-setting poem for Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem? For the Children of
1: Israel and the Ones Who Will Try to Forget. Hmm. That's That's a mouthful of a title. Yes. Okay. Let's hear the poem. As the leaves begin to make their way, red and pooling under the ancient elms, those flashing lights pulse through the hours and go blazing through the dreaming minutes. At each step a little of that anger spilling over, which I nursed for two years and tried to forget, each drop making up for one of the tears in my little boy eyes as the fire burned just out of sight at the altar where I prayed and where I became a man. The man on the television screen, he holds a gun the way a little boy holds a teddy bear, his only remnant in this life of a past fetal world which was warm and never knew the words Eretz Israel, as anything but a blazing dream the way we toast with each passing Pesach next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem I will see the scars of each successive generation each bullet hole alike no matter the creed of skin pierced I will feel the ghosts around me singing at some grand music festival in the sky where the desert is still and the only shaking is the beating of the joyous drums. Mine is an anger primordial, which screams at each ignorant one to stop their crawling in the dark for easy answers. Look up into the eyes still warm in which once blaze the same naive and hopeful fire, not burning but escaping in smoke into the purifying clouds where each drop of blood shed becomes rain and falls like brandy into the sea. I have forgiven the boy with his fire. I have forgiven the man with his gun. I cannot forgive the ones who do not look, the ones who wave another's flag like a blindfold which will keep them from seeing we're human.
0: Hmm.
1: Hmm. Very moving, Zachary. What what is your poem about? My poem is, is many things, but I think it's really sort of my feelings as someone on a college campus living through this moment. Also someone who is very familiar with, with anti-Semitism, but also I think it's a hope for a common humanity and a recognition that that some of the trauma that I think this moment has raised in all of us is something that isn't specific to either side of the conflict or to any any particular religion or or, or nationality even, but, but something that, that we all feel viscerally. And hopefully there can be at least some comfort in the possibility that maybe that sort of collective trauma or experience of violence can in the future lead to some, some hopeful, peaceful conclusion. Right, right. We, we hope there's
0: something something good that can come from this horrible set of events. Peter, before we get to the future, let's let's step back a, a little bit. How do you explain what's happened the last few weeks uh,
2: in, in Israel and in Gaza? Well, I think nobody, there is no structural explanation that can or should take away moral responsibility from people who knowingly kill civilians. So when Hamas launched this um, massive attack in Israel on the morning of October 7th, their fighters killed an enormous number of Israeli innocent civilians in addition to Israeli troops. And that was a decision that was made by Hamas collectively and by those in those individuals. And there's no excusing it. It is a sign of an organization that just fundamentally does not respect the value of human life. I think the, the challenge for me and I, I really s- struggle, have struggled with this a lot over the last, you know, 10 days or so, is to hold that reality, which to me is indisputable, and also kind of hold the things that I am hearing from Palestinians. And when Palestinians talk about Hamas, almost invariably, they point to the conditions in Gaza and the conditions for Palestinians more generally as things that one has to understand in order to understand what Hamas is and why Palestinians might, um, uh, might, ha- why Palestinians might tolerate it, um, and the forces that produced it. And so I think I find this a very honestly precarious intellectual and moral tension, which is not unique to this situation. I think it exists in many situations because there are many situations tragically throughout history where groups of people who are oppressed, and I think Palestinians are undeniably oppressed, yeah. nonetheless, Some of them do horrifying things, and and we need to be able to hold these two truths, that there is genuine oppression that calls us morally, and there was a hideous massacre that also requires a moral response.
0: And Peter, I appreciate your honesty and articulateness about that. It's very hard for most of us to to say both of those things at the same time, but I think they are crucial
1: truths. Zachary, you had the next question? Why this moment for Hamas to attack so brutally, but but also for Israel's response, one which has been remarkably unified, at least from a domestic political perspective, in the last few
2: days? Maybe that's not the case now. Why now? So I think the first thing that's always important to remember when we say, talk about Israel being unified is that 20% of Israel's citizens are Palestinians. So they are not part of that unity, right? Mm -hmm. Not to mention the other, the Palestinians who are held under Israeli control in East Jerusalem and the West Bank, for instance, who can't, who are not citizens, right? So yes, I think among Jewish Israelis, there is an overwhelming consensus that Israel has to act militarily and, um, and, and destroy Hamas. The difficulty in answering why now is, I think, frankly, that there is not great reporting on Hamas. There are not a lot of reporters right now in Gaza, and there are not a lot of people with the kind of sources in the background and the linguistic facility that would be capable of, I think, of actually answering that in in a sophisticated way. So there's a lot of speculation. I think that there is, I think, what Hamas's military commander, Mohammed Def, has said, I don't quote him in any way to suggest that he is um, someone that we should think of as, with anything but utter disdain, but he's speaking to Palestinians. And the quote, this basically the statement he made was, we have seen um, mounting assaults on Palestinians in the West Bank on the Al-Aqsa Mosque, increased intrusions by Israelis onto the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is not just an important religious site, but a very important national site for Palestinians. A blockade that has no, in Gaza, that's been lasted 17 years and has no prospect for ending. And he basically said in his statement, the world is doing nothing. Um, about our oppression and indeed about an accelerating I- oppression because of the how radical this Israeli government is. So we took acts into our own hands. Now, one can take that with a grain of salt. There's others who suspected it may have been an act to try to derail the Israeli Saudi normalization plan because that would have been for the Palestinian cause a, a big setback. Because if the Israelis have the Saudis without needing to accommodate the Palestinians, then the Palestinians lose a big card. Although some will say, if they were training for this for two years, how could it have been meant to do that? There's others that are in speculation. I mean, there are all kinds of speculation, but the truth is, I haven't seen much that really gives us a good answer to that, and I think it's a failure, frankly, of American and Western journalism.
0: I agree, Peter. I agree. And I think even asking that question is is so important. Let's talk, if we might, about the Israeli response, which of course is ongoing, as is the uh, set of actions from Hamas and and others in the region. Obviously, uh, Israel, as any sovereign state, uh, has a right to defend itself. Uh, How do you assess the Israeli response in that context?
2: You know, it just reminds me so much of the American discourse after September 11th which was agony, overwhelming grief, and a sense of justified, in both cases, justified rage, and a sense that something decisive had to be done. Because Israel, Gaza, it, Hamas has controlled Gaza, the inside of Gaza, from since 2006, uh, 2007, really. And Israel has controlled the perimeter. And, and they had a kind of a they, they had these skirmishes, but in a way, there was some thought that there was a kind of modus operandi between the two of them. Now, I think the overwhelming number of Jewish Israelis say that is finished, that Hamas cannot be allowed to continue in control. And it reminds me a little bit of when people said the Taliban can't be allowed to be, remain in control in Afghanistan. It's entirely an understandable response, but it doesn't answer the very difficult questions, right? The United States found that it could topple the Taliban, it could also topple Saddam Hussein, and then it was essentially stuck with a country that it had to try to manage in the face of an insurgency it could not put down. And it seems to me the most likely result of Israel going in on the ground and overthrowing and destroying Hamas would be a similar situation. How should we understand the response first from the United States uh, and
1: then from other nations around the world to Hamas's attacks and the ongoing
2: uh, Israeli response? I actually first want to say something about the Biden administration before this attack. I think history will judge the Biden administration very harshly because the, again, not in any way to excuse the horror of what Hamas did, but... The Biden administration, by deciding, unlike the Obama administration, from the very beginning, to make no effort whatsoever to create any possibility that Palestinians might be able to achieve basic human rights. I think that that was a contributing factor to the desperation that made it easier for Hamas to act, easier among Palestinians. Um, because if you, uh, from what I've seen about interviews from Palestinians, Many Palestinians, including those who really don't like Hamas, don't like the way it governs, don't like its ideology, have essentially been asked when they think about what they think about this action, they say, well, we might as well die now because we were dying slowly anyway. And that's, I think, a despair that empowers Hamas, for which the Biden administration, because it didn't want to deal with the difficult politics of Israel in Washington, I think bears some blame. So now the Biden administration is basically supporting Israel, although, and trying to manage the situation by trying to have some humanitarian supplies go into Gaza. And I think also spending a tremendous amount of time trying to, trying to ensure that this conflict does not spiral into the West Bank, into Jordan, and into Lebanon, all of which are very real possibilities that this could end with the collapse of the Palestinian Authority, that this could end with attempts with with the war with Hezbollah in the North, uh, and that this could threaten the, the, the government in Jordan. So I think those are all of what it's doing, but what it's not doing still is offering any possibility of a political horizon that could deal with the underlying problems here of a territory, Gaza, which has been deemed unlivable by the United Nations and by a Palestinian population that lives under the control of a state that does not give it basic rights.
0: And what should the U.S. do then in this situation? How can the United States be a productive actor within the context of your criticism?
2: I mean, it's so difficult now at this point, given how far gone things are, but I think I would start by uh, by wishing that the Biden administration, and they may be saying this privately, um, to say to the Israeli government and the Israeli government, and to say to the Israeli government in a forceful way, do you have an end game? We understand your rage, we understand your desire to defend yourself in response to this horrific massacre. But what is your end game? Um, Because we are not prepared to just indefinitely supply you militarily and and support you diplomatically. If there is none, Israel can kill a great many Hamas fighters, and it can destroy a tremendous amount of Hamas infrastructure. But it will also, in the process, produce a new generation of Palestinians who are so traumatized and so rageful that even if Hamas doesn't exist, they will join Hamas 2.0 or Hamas 3.0. It's worth remembering that Hamas only was only created in the late 1980s. Palestinians have been fighting Israel, including fighting Israel in horrifying ways in, in terms with attacks on civilians going back to at least 1929. The, the terrorist attacks of the nineteen sixties and seventies against airplanes and against the Munich Olympics in nineteen seventy two were not carried out by Islamists. They were carried out by leftist Palestinian factions like the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. So this is much bigger than Hamas, and I think those are the issues the the kind of questions that I would hope the Biden administration, at least privately, is is trying to get the Israelis to think about.
0: Peter, what? How do you respond to um, your? Jewish relatives and friends uh, who tell you that Israel needs to be strong and tough, and the the deeper structural issues you're pointing to, those have
2: to wait. Look, I'll be honest with you. I'm not convincing anybody. I don't know that I was ever that I was convincing many people before. I'm really not convincing people now. There is, I I don't need to tell you, there is um there is an agony and grief and rage that I just think has blocked out the potential, of, except for a relatively small number of American Jews and an even smaller number of Israeli Jews, th- th- what I'm saying. So I, I think in some ways I'm just kind of whistling into the wind. But I, my fear is that we will have these conversations eventually, just like we eventually had them in the United States once Iraq and Afghanistan were going south. But by that point, so many more people will have died. And been maimed and have their lives had their lives destroyed. Palestinians, first and foremost, but also a lot of Israeli soldiers. A lot of Israeli soldiers when they go in fighting on the ground, the, you know, Hamas has presumably been waiting for this, and it's on their home turf. And I, I just tremble when I think because I know you may as well. I know Israelis are going to be going in. And I, I tremble for what will happen to those soldiers, yes. and I, I worry that we will have this conversation, but we will have it after a lot more trauma.
0: Right. And I also worry, Peter, and you've written about this uh, in this situation and in others, I worry about both the, the rising anti-Semitism that this contributes to, but also the rising, rising Muslim anti-Palestinian sentiment. How, how do you think about managing that at this moment?
2: I mean, yes, we already had an attack. I think it was in Illinois, I think, on a, we already had a deadly anti-Muslim attack. There is evidence, there's academic evidence from, I think the studies were done, it was a study in Belgium and a study in, I think, New Zealand or Australia, which showed that when there is more violence in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it it leads to a greater number of reported anti-Semitic attacks because some people tragically and wrongly don't distinguish between their anger at what Israel is doing and Jews who happen to live among them, and that's very frightening. So I absolutely agree with that. And I also worry about the way in which some in the pro-Palestinian camp and in the left have lost the ability to see Israeli Jewish humanity. I think there is a legitimate debate. To, I understand the the fury that Palestinians have because they feel like their suffering get so much less attention than Israeli Jews, and they feel like they are so often silenced in this conversation. Um, but I do worry very, very much, and actually am quite kind of chilled when I see people in certain left-wing spaces essentially say things along the line of, well, this is what decolonization looks like, and if you have to break, if you have to break some eggs to make an omelet, so be it. That is, it seems to me, a dehumanization of Israeli Jews that in the wake of this, of this horror really, really worries me.
0: Zachary, to, to close us out, you've been experiencing all of this on, on your college campus. And of course, I've been seeing it on, on my campus. I'm sure Peter's seeing it as well. Uh, and I know you've been very moved by this. How do you react to exactly what Peter's describing here, this sort of dehumanization on both sides? And what do you think we can do?
1: I, I think first of all it's it's very difficult. I know to be clear I go to Yale University um I'm a first year and I've heard of it yeah <laughs> there are there are so many students on campus I know of Jewish students uh, that I know quite well who have who have had to take weeks off of school at this point a week off of school of class or 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 have have delayed turning in assignments or participating in activities just to process process the trauma. And, and the worst part of it is that so many of our classmates seem, at least online, to present themselves as, as not just not caring, but being triumphant about the violence suffered in Israel. But on the other hand, I think that it's too easy to focus on that sometimes. We held a, a vigil in the center of campus on Monday, the Monday after the attacks. And it was attended by some six to seven hundred people, uh, whereas the only sort of pro-Palestinian or pro-Hamas demonstration, depending on how how one characterizes it, had only a few dozen people. And so I think it's it's very easy to to characterize or to focus on those points of friction. But I think that that non-Jews and Jews alike came together at least, in large part. To mourn the the lives lost, um, and hopefully in the future we'll, we'll come together um, to to push for peace uh, in the right. region. Right.
0: And and I think many of our episodes, we, we try to come to some conclusion where there's a path forward, where history points to a, a way we can all come together or hope to come together. But I think in this situation, uh, just building on what you've said, Zachary, and, and, and your points, Peter, it seems to me that, that the history offers us uh, maybe a moment of caution a moment to pause and yeah. to to try to avoid some of the extreme words and extreme actions that we're seeing around us. The emotions, as you said, are, are strong, but, but our actions sometimes need to be more cautious than our emotions. Your, your final thoughts on that, Peter?
2: Yes. I mean, the, the point I was trying to make in the in New York Times piece is that um, the forces that I think are trying to bring Jews and Palestinians and other people and people of goodwill together in pursuit of the basic principles that I think We, I would hope we cherish, which are equality, that human dignity is unnegotiable, that all life is infinitely precious, and that these two peoples have to live together in peace and in justice. Those forces have been dealt a tremendous blow, uh, a tremendous blow. I mean, I just see it in so many of the relationships that, that relationships between Jews and Palestinians, the activists, people who were struggling together, have been made vastly harder because there's just such overwhelming pain and rage and and grief and we have to remember that what Jews experienced and we can continue to experience the reverberations especially with those captives Palestinians are now experiencing as Israel just pummels Gaza I know people who have relatives in Gaza they have they can't reach them there're no they have no shelters there's no place to there's no place to hide even in hospitals schools there's a, so 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 that's producing a, that that response even as Jews are Out of their minds with grief but i think that the you know i had an israeli friend who left a fancy american academic job and went back to israel and i asked her if she saw any prospect for the the kind of israel palestine that she dreamed of and she said that she felt like an abolitionist in the 1820s and so what i interpreted her as saying is that she was trying to keep something alive that might not bear fruit for a long time and it seems to me that's all we can do in this moment
0: Zachary, you wanted the, the last word on this?:
1: I just wanted to echo what, what both of you said and say I think one of the things we we need to to, to keep uh, in our minds is is humility, because I think none of us, even those like, like the two of you who have studied this conflict for, for for decades, none of us can can fully grasp all of the the historical complexities and and the repeated instances of violence and, and trauma at play. And I think the best we can do is to recognize the, the sort of common humanity in, in, in everyone who is suffering in this conflict um, and, and not to assume that that our response has to always be political or, or necessarily on, on either side, if you will.
0: Well said, Zachary. Uh, amidst all the suffering and the pain, I think history does teach us that uh, humility is necessary, particularly in these moments, to be able to listen and not to search for easy answers. Peter Beinart, thank you so much for sharing really your your extraordinary insights and your courageous articulateness on this issue with with our listeners. It's my pleasure, thanks for having me. And Zachary, thank you for your um, really moving poem and your wonderful questions. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy.